0: The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this evening, Before the Throne of God, part 5, Revelation chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. So in previous sermons now on this text, we've been through four sermons on this text, now coming to to part five and concluding our text this evening, we have peered through an open door into heaven, as it were, with the Apostle John, and it's there through that open door in heaven that we've beheld, and often with much sanctified imagination, we've beheld, as it were, the very throne room of God. And in the throne room of God, there are those who are gathered around the throne in the worship of the one who sits upon the throne. And as we discussed last Lord's Day, uh, in considering the nature of that worship, uh, that worship is not scripted, if you will, or contrived in any way, shape, or form. That worship is the earnest and essentially the reflexive response of the creation to the divine revelation of God's inherent glory as God reveals himself what is the natural you could say what is the rational the reasonable response of the creature it is to worship God and if we <laughs> if we're ever in our right mind and we're speaking of fallen human beings right fallen in Adam um uh, suffering the effects of the fall suffering the consequences of our sin so to speak so our worship in a sense we speak about this on a regular basis our worship here being somewhat hindered somewhat fettered by sin the worship of heaven not so and what happens when god um the 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 one who is enthroned in majesty the one who is enthroned in glory when god reveals himself or discloses himself to creation uh he Uh, beams forth the glory of his person, the excellence of his person, what is the natural, rational, reasonable, uh, almost involuntary response of the creature? It is to worship God. It is to respond in worship. That's why you see, um, for example, John and others, uh, for a, a creature like an angel, uh, to be standing before them, and what do they do? They fall on their face, and you hear an angel saying, Get up, man. <laughs> uh, don't uh, We're a creature like you are. Uh, worship God. Um, God is awesome in glory, and he compels worship just by the, the the very force and majesty and glory of his own person. It's a reflexive response of the creation to the divine revelation. It's not unlike the response of Isaiah, When he saw the Lord in Isaiah chapter six, you know, Isaiah witnesses the Lord. We looked at that text last week and the Lord is high and lifted up in majesty. He's exalted the train of his robe, filling the temple. And what was Isaiah's response? Isaiah's, you could say his involuntary response, his reflexive response, the, the earnest like overflow of Isaiah's um, reaction in seeing the Lord displayed in his glory in the temple Worship. Isaiah begins by acknowledging his own sinfulness, right? And crying out, I am undone. The cherubim, the seraphim there cover their eyes, they cover their feet. And the hymn that rings out from the vault of heaven day and night is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. An awesome picture, right? God is is worthy of that kind of response. Um, God is worthy that we should be in awe and in wonder of him. And it is only our sin that is the the reason why we're not overwhelmed when we see him uh, displayed or exalted or revealed to us on the pages of even Scripture like this uh, for his majesty and all that he's done. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, the glory of God is both exhibited... There is a sense in which God's own inherent or internal glory is exhibited, it's emanated or revealed or disclosed, uh, and then because it is communicated in that way or manifested in that way, it's acknowledged by the creation. So his glory both exhibited and then acknowledged and in the creatures knowing In the creature's esteeming, loving, rejoicing in, and praising God, Edward says his fullness is first received and then returned. His refulgence shines upon and into the creature and is reflected back to the luminary. It's a beautiful picture, I think, of what the nature of worship really is. And so the natural, the appropriate, the, the reasonable... Response of the creature to God's own self-disclosure is worship. It is adoration, right? Adoration. It's praise. It's awe. It's wonder. That's why God told the Israelites, for example, by those who draw near to me, I must be regarded as holy. That's why we pray, God, hallow yourself in our eyes. He is to be hallowed. But man has been rendered irrational by the fall in many ways, in which man has been rendered unreasonable by the fall. His natural condition now is to be blinded to that and blinded by his sin. He no longer sees as he should. He no longer comprehends as he should. And his natural response now to a revelation of God is to retreat, (laughs) like Adam seeking to hide himself in the trees of the garden. Uh, He's to retreat into the shadows where he can sin in the dark, and rather than coming into the light that his deeds may be clearly seen as having been done in God. That coming into the light is a fruit of God's work of regeneration in the heart of the sinner, making the sinner a new creation, indwelling the sinner with his spirit, giving him a new heart, giving him a renewed nature, renewed mind. A new spiritual sight where before there was only blindness and darkness and ignorance. He has to make man, as it were, a new creation, freed from his bondage to sin, reconciled to God. And when a man is born again, when his eyes are open, his ears are unplugged, then he responds more as he should. He responds more in the way that is reasonable and rational and appropriate and fitting given who God is. He responds with worship. And it's worship that is empowered by God's Spirit. So it's worship, in that sense, from a renewed heart, it's worship that is pleasing and acceptable to God. It's worship that is in spirit and in truth. It becomes then, doesn't it, an informed worship that responds appropriately. That's why we we talk about here in our understanding, in in our study of doctrine, our study of Scripture, how important it is to know him as he has revealed himself. Why? Because when we know him, as he has revealed himself in his word, brothers and sisters, we, with an informed understanding of who God is, who the Lord Jesus Christ is, what he has done, we then can turn and worship in an informed way that brings him glory, that reflects back to him his own intrinsic, inherent glory. Do you see? And our worship, apart from that knowledge, is idolatry. It's idolatry. We need to understand the Bible. We need to know him from Scripture so that we can have that reasonable, rational, appropriate, fitting response to his glorious self-disclosure. Now, it's that kind of worship that is exemplified in the heavenly court in Revelation 4. we first there in the heavenly court. We see there is this acknowledgement of God's holiness. We looked at that last week. It's the expression of worship for God as holy that we considered in verse 8 last week. But second, there is now the acknowledgement of God's worthiness in verses 9 through 11. An expression of worship that acknowledges God as worthy of worship, beginning in verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now we've considered, as we consider as we think about this text together, we've considered John's description and the identity of these four living beings, and the four living beings representative of creation. The four living beings, symbolic, if you will, of the entire created order, including both man and beast. And as we've talked about before, looking through the book of Revelation, These four living beings exist. Uh, They they were seen by Isaiah in the throne room. They're seen by Ezekiel. We see them uh, described in scripture. Here they are again in Revelation chapter four. These are actual created living beings, but they're symbolic in the sense that they point to something. And what we understood from the throne room of God and those who were gathered around the throne these four living beings having those, those four faces symbolic, if you will, of the entire created order, man and beast. They're around the throne, described as being in the very midst of the throne. They're full of eyes in front and in back, verse 6. They're full of eyes around and within, verse 8. And that's signifying wisdom, their wisdom as agents of God, signifying watchfulness as the agents of God. We'll see in Daniel, Daniel referring to them as the watchers. The watchers, full of eyes around and within, front and back. And what are they doing in verse 9? What are they doing? They're in the very presence of God, giving glory and honor and thanks to him, to the one who sits on the throne, to the one who lives forever and ever. With reference to glory, we've been speaking about this with um, uh, respect to the worship of God. Glory, speaking of the divine beauty, (laughs) The the glory of God uh, manifested, if you will, or exhibited, if you will, in beams of light, as we see in Scripture, the divine beauty, the divine majesty, divine truth, divine goodness. In the words of Edwards, the beams of glory come from God, are something of God, and are refunded back again to their original, so that the whole is of God and in God and to God, and he is the beginning, the middle, and the end. So with reference to glory, with reference to honor, the living beings, again, representative of creation, extol God for his divine worthiness, worthy of respect, worthy of adoration, worthy of praise, worthy of value, worthy of an acknowledgement of the excellence of his person and the wonders of his works. Uh, He is to be hallowed. By those who draw near to him, he must be regarded as Holy, worthy of fear, right? Worthy of honor. And then lastly, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, an acknowledgement that we've been given life, (laughs) that He is the one who has created us and not we ourselves, and that everything that we are, everything that we have, comes from Him. Those 24, or those four living beings giving glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne. We see in verse 10, then, the 24 elders. And again, those 24 elders, representing the entirety of the church, they themselves are in the midst of the throne. They themselves are around the throne. And when in the heavenly order of service, the four living beings worship, they themselves then fall before him in worship. A rightly ordered, reasonable, appropriate, rational, fitting response to God's self-disclosure. A reasonable response of the creature to God's glory they worship. Twice in these verses, he's referred to as the one who lives forever and ever. Literally, it means the one who lives into the ages of ages. The one who transcends creation... Is the one who transcends time itself. He is the eternal one. He is the one who has life in himself. The one who is life. He is the great I am. He is the one who was and is and is to come. And so when we think about God's infinitude, his infinitude applied to time means that God is eternal. God is outside of time. He is not bounded by time. When we consider God's infinitude as it applies to space, God is omnipresent. He's not bounded by space. He's not bounded by a form. He's omnipresent. So God is infinite. And whenever we consider his infinitude and relate that to time, God transcends time. He is the one who lives forever and ever, and not just forever and ever, future thinking, but transcending time. He is the one who lives into the ages of ages, It's an awesome statement. And in worship now, and in adoration, these 24 elders cast their crowns before him. That's interesting. These 24 elders we've discussed, representative of the church, those 12 uh, sons of Jacob, as it were, the 12 apostles, Old Testament and New Testament, the 24 elders are robed in white, and they have crowns on their head. We've talked about how that is a representation of believers the word elder, often referring to a human referent rather than an an angelic referent. Um, So these are representatives, if you will, of the entirety of the church. And they are are crowned as kings. They're kings themselves. Notice they're seated seated on thrones. They're seated on 24 thrones. They have crowns on their head. So they're kings themselves, seated on thrones themselves. Those crowns, think about with me um, where they came from. Those crowns, Promised to the believer as a reward for their perseverance in faithfulness to the end. What does scripture say? They receive an imperishable crown, First Corinthians 9:25. They receive a crown of righteousness. Second Timothy, chapter four, verse eight. They receive the crown of life, James chapter one, verse 12, a crown of glory. First Peter chapter five, verse four. Uh, Revelation chapter one says that he has made us kings and priests to our God. So believers are crowned, crowned in glory, uh, crowned as a reward to the one who overcomes. I will give the crown of life, right? Crowned as a reward for their perseverance in faithfulness to the end. But what are they doing with those crowns? I've thought about that before, right? We're given so much by God. Give it, everything that we have comes from him. Apart from him, we can do absolutely nothing. And yet God is so gracious in his condescending Uh, condescension to sinful human beings that he rewards us (laughs) our own perseverance is because of him and not because of our own strength he is the one who preserves us and then he crowns us with glory awesome like awesome the lord is gracious so what do they do with those crowns they cast them at his feet Because he is the one who is alone worthy to receive glory and honor and praise. You see, any reward, any glory they have, they've received can only be rightly and appropriately traced back to the grace of the one who created them and then back to the one who's given them all things. That symbol of a crown is a symbol of a delegated or a derived authority. Well, who delegated it to us? From whom is it derived? It's derived from God. So this is an acknowledgement, again, again, this is an acknowledgement of the worthiness of God to receive all worship, all honor, all praise, all glory. Right? He is the one. He is the one through whom we've been given life and breath and everything that we have, And it's only appropriate that those who have been crowned by God and have derived their, any authority that they have has been derived from God, they've been rewarded in such a way, crowned with glory, only appropriate, only fitting, only reasonable, only rational, that they would cast their crowns uh, before his feet in worship. God himself and God alone is the origin and source of their authority as kings and priests of their God. And so to the one who is alone worthy to receive glory and honor and power, they return, they reminate, to use that word that Edwards coined. Uh, they, they, um, it's a refulgence, it's a return, it's a refund, if you will, of the reflected glory which has been revealed in them by the Spirit of God through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they cast their crowns before him in an act of worship. Psalm 115, verse 1, I was reminded of this psalm in thinking about this. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. And again, all of this takes place around a throne. All of it takes place in the throne room of God, around a throne. That throne, a present, visible, Evident symbol of God's authority over all things. That's going to become very important in a moment, and I'll explain why. God, if you think about it, this, this view in heaven is an anthropomorphism because God doesn't have a form. God doesn't sit. So to speak, he's not bounded by a form. Um, God is the invisible God. God is spirit. But here is the one who is seated upon a throne. Why is he envisaged that way? It's because God is um, expressing, disclosing his power and authority over all that he has created. Here, again, creation represented in the worship of these four living beings around the throne. So it becomes a a present, visible, visible, evident symbol of god's authority his sovereign authority over all creation represented in the four living beings his sovereign authority over the church represented in the 24 elders and the presence of god is described as seated upon that throne what is god doing seated upon a throne he's ruling god is reigning he's in the midst of his creation and in the midst think about the way the way that um John here describes the scene is that the 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 four living beings are around the throne and in the midst of the throne. If you, if you go back to Ezekiel chapter one and you look at Ezekiel's account of this, it's as if the four living beings are a part of the, the mechanism that makes up the very throne room of God. The wheels are beside them and anywhere that the four, the four living beings go, the wheels go with them and they are a part of the wheel and seen in the wheel. It's almost as if the four living beings are indistinguishable from the throne itself. And at the same time, Around the throne, in the midst of the throne, meaning in within the presence of God Himself, the One who is seated upon the throne, you have the twenty-four elders who are representing the church. So they're in the immediate. I don't mean that in terms of soon, but in, I mean that in terms of nearness. In the immediate presence of God, you have those representing all of the creation and those representing all of the church. And what is God doing? God is. Seated upon the throne, ruling in the midst of his creation, in the midst of the church, and receiving that which is reasonable (laughs) for him to receive, receiving that which is fitting and appropriate for any rational creature to give to the revelation of God. Now, I want to give you an example of this. And we're heading somewhere, and we'll get there in a moment, but I want to give you an example of this. Worship that is both reasonable and the way that man can often react in unreasonable ways. Turn back with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And in Daniel chapter 4, in addition to Isaiah, in addition to Ezekiel, much of the language of Revelation 4 and 5 is derived from the prophecy of Daniel. And there is a unity to Revelation in that. that unity ultimately points to one ultimate author, who is the Spirit of God. But you see that unity reflected in, in what Isaiah sees, and what Ezekiel sees, and what Daniel is uh, seeing, and then in what John is seeing. And in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar uh, has a dream that makes him afraid. And so he calls the, the wise men of Babylon uh, to come and to interpret the dream. And they can't do it. The dream is one of a a great tree growing in the midst of the earth and a watcher, maybe one with uh, eyes front and back, around and within. (laughs) Watcher comes down from heaven and pronounces judgment. We often see the cherubim, the seraphim in Isaiah 6 doing that, these four heavenly beings. They come down from heaven, pronounce judgment. The tree is going to be chopped down. So the great tree in the interpretation that Daniel gives, represented Nebuchadnezzar's reign. The great tree is Nebuchadnezzar himself, and Nebuchadnezzar is about to be cut down to size. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, this decision, this pronouncement of judgment, is by the decree of the watchers, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, those are the agents of God, in order that, or for the purpose that, the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdoms of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over the lowest of men. What is God doing seated upon his throne? He's ruling. He is reigning. Why? Because God has all authority. He's given that authority to Jesus Christ. But he's ruling and he's reigning. He rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will. Now we're very familiar with this account. Nebuchadnezzar fails to repent he fails to take the decree seriously. Look at verse twenty-eight. This judgment that has been pronounced, verse twenty-eight. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the twelve months. He was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, "Is this not great?" You can see him just, you know, putting his thumbs under his overall straps and rocking back on his heels, is this not this great kingdom that I've built for a royal dwelling by my, by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Um, let me submit to you, that is not rational. <laughs> that is the irrational response of an unreasonable, sinful, blinded, darkened, ignorant creature. Why? Why? Because God is the one who sits on the throne, and God is the one who rules, and God gives the kingdom to whomever he wills. This is not the rational response of a reasonable creature uh, to the revelation of God. He, if it were rational, if it were reasonable, he'd be worshiping God, but he's not, right? Verse 31. While the word was still in the king's mouth, I acknowledge no hesitation here, A voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar. You can almost hear him saying, put your hand over your mouth. (laughs) To you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That's the purpose, right? That you and all the living may know that God rules. Now we've been become familiar now with symbolic numbers associated with apocalyptic literature. So what does the number seven refer to? Seven times shall pass over you. It refers to a perfect amount of time. The number seven referring to a perfection, or symbolizing perfection, symbolizing completion, symbolizing sufficiency, a sufficient amount of time passed over him, a complete amount of time passed over him. Could it have been seven literal years? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what is meant by seven years? A sufficient amount of time. A complete amount of time. A perfect amount of time. Uh, And what made it perfect? It's the amount of time that God appointed, right? That's what made it, that's what made it perfect. So seven times shall pass over you. Could that have been seven literal years? Of course it could. But what is meant by the reference? A complete amount of time. When we get to further into Revelation, those numbers become, it becomes really important to understand that fact. Those numbers may, in some general sense, apply to an actual period of time. But what is it pointing to? What are the symbols, Uh, what is the sign pointing us to? Verse 33, that very hour, no, no wasting time here, The word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men. He ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. He regained his senses. He he came to his right mind. Do you see? Not unlike the prodigal. The prodigal went away into a far country. He's in a far country, eating slop with the pigs, and what happens? He comes to his senses. He comes to his senses. He, He sees things more as they really are. He, Nebuchadnezzar, regains his senses, his understanding returned, and what did he do? What did he do? Now, With understanding, with understanding. What is the reasonable, rational, appropriate, fitting response of a reasonable creature to God's self-disclosure? What's their reasonable response? Worship, worship. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. The one who lives into the ages of ages. He responds in worship. He responds in praise, in adoration. Adoration for the one who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. For, because, with his understanding, he acknowledges, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand. He is... Ponto Crator. Um, he is Lord God Almighty. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? In verse 36 At the same time, my reason returned to me. He had a reasonable response to the revelation of God because he was of his right mind, you could say. And at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor, my splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored uh, to my kingdom. Excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, I, Nebuchadnezzar, who went through the school of hard knocks to understand truth, um, praise and extol and honor, worship the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. You see the the, the connection in Daniel chapter four to right worship, to informed worship, to reasonable response. We're irrational, unreasonable, and we respond like brute beasts with claws, nails like claws, and hair like feathers, and sitting out in the dew eating grass, we respond like brute beasts. But when we have our understanding informed, when we come to our senses, for sinful man, that takes place at regeneration. It takes a work of the Spirit of God to make us reasonable creatures. It it takes God making of us a new creation for us to worship as we should. And that informed worship um, we see connected to this in Revelation 4. The living beings give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives into the ages of ages. They're responding in worship. And when they do, the 24 elders join in to worship him who sits on the throne. The one who sits on the throne is the most high who rules in the kingdoms of men, do you see? And to him who lives into the ages of ages, they cast their crowns before him saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power doesn't he have glory and honor and power yes he does what is this then this is a a reflection <laughs> it's a reflection as a mirror might reflect the beams of light from the sun the mirror is not the sun they are two completely different things but the mirror reflects doesn't it this is a reflection if you will uh, it's an acknowledgment, if you will, of God's glory and honor and power. And God is worthy to receive this ascription of praise and power because, as it says in verse 11, he's worthy to receive it because you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. They exist. Think about the the the, the tenses of those words. They exist in the present, and they were created in the past. So he receives this ascription of praise and power and glory because by your will they exist. What is that saying? Saying that God sustains all things in the present. Everything that we know and see right this moment exists right this moment because God wills it. The second, the nanosecond that God did not will it is the nanosecond it would no longer exist. Everything exists by his will. And by his will, they were created. He creates and sustains all things. Acts chapter 17, verse 25, he gives, present active participle there, he gives to all of us life breath, and all things. It's present active. He is giving you life. He is giving you breath. He is giving you all things. He gives to all of us life, breath, and all things. He created all things, and all things continue to serve his divine purpose. Why is there anything that is? Because God, right? If there was ever a time, if there ever were a time when there was nothing you can be absolutely certain that nothing would exist today. Why is there anything at all? Because God, he creates all things, and by his will they exist and were created. Now, in the worship of heaven then, from Revelation 4, first, there is this acknowledgement of God's holiness. His infinitude extended to power, And he is Lord God Almighty, his infinitude extended to time, and he is the one who was and is and is to come. Second, there's this acknowledgement in the worship of heaven, this acknowledgement of God's worthiness. Because he is worthy because by his own will, he created all things and now sustains all things. Now The psalmist considers these dual concepts in terms of a contrast. Listen to this. This is the words of Psalm 102. Beginning in verse 25, the words of the psalmist assert of God the Almighty, he says, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, the heavens are the works of your hands, they will perish, but you will endure. They will grow old like a garment, like a cloak, you will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. So the psalmist conceives of this worship in terms of a, of a contrast. And basically the contrast is that, that contrast, if you will, I want to explain this in a moment, between God's holiness and his worthiness because he created all things. God is creator. And really it's a contrast between God's transcendence, he is holy, 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 and God's imminence. Not meaning imminent, his His speed, <laughs> his imminence, his nearness. God's transcendence and God's imminence. Psalm 102, verse 11. My days are like a shadow that lengthens and I wither away like grass. I'm fragile, I'm weak, I'm needy. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever into the ages of ages and the remembrance of your name to all generations. There's this um, contrast, if you will, between that which is immediate and that which is mediate. But the contrast that we see in Revelation 4 uh, isn't really a contrast between God and the creation per se. It's a contrast between his transcendence and his imminence. He is holy, holy, holy. Remember, there's a moral component to holiness and an ontological component to holiness. Moral component, uh, God is separated entirely from sin. The ontological component, component means that God is entirely other from his creation, entirely a different being he is holy because he transcends creation he is entirely other he is altogether not like us he is unbounded in power, he transcends time and space, he is far above distinct from entirely independent from his creation he is a say right and yet he is worthy to receive in worship an inscription of glory and honor and power. From the creation because of his imminence in drawing near to create. He is imminent in creation ruling over the creation in goodness and grace. One of the reasons that God in Revelation chapter four is depicted as seated upon the throne, ruling and reigning with the four living beings representing creation creation around the throne and in the midst of the throne. The reason that God is seated there on the throne with the 24 elders representing the church around the throne and in the midst of the throne is because God Almighty, the transcendent one, has drawn near to us in his goodness, in his rule, and in his reign to rule over the creation that he's created. In that sense, he is transcendent and imminent. Do you see? He's drawn near to us. Think about this from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10. In 1 Chronicles 29, David's making preparations for the future temple, and David prays this, verse 10. Therefore, David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever, into the ages of ages. <laughs> Notice the personal use of Father. What is that? That's an, an example of God's imminence, his nearness. That we could call the living God Father? Father. Then David makes this statement regarding God's transcendence. Verse 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth are yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all exalted his head, incomprehensibly transcendent in majesty and glory, and David calls him father. (laughs) And he rules and reigns and gives to all, all things. That to me is awesome. And I know like we uh, overuse that word uh, out and about, but in here, speaking of these things, it is entirely appropriate. That is awesome. God is transcendent, so far above his creation, transcending his creation, and yet imminent, draws near to us such that with David, we can call him father. In addition to being transcendent, distinct from every created thing, unique in his being, infinite and perfect in his attributes, God is also blessedly, gloriously imminent, drawing near or present involved such that David calls him father. Listen to Psalm 139. Again, listen to the words of David. Verse one, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. God is imminent. He's near to us. He searches us and knows us. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You were acquainted with all my ways There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Imminence, do you see? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Transcendence. God is transcendent. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Omnipresent unbounded by space. If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me. Imminence. God takes him by the hand and leads him. Your right hand shall hold me. That's the living God we're speaking about. The one who created all things And David worships the transcendent God for his eminence in drawing near to him. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Give me another example of this. Acts 17. In Acts 17, remember that Paul's in Athens. Uh, Paul's spirit is provoked within him because he's righteously indignant over the idolatry of the city. And Paul is preaching in the marketplace. And when he's approached there by Epicureans, Stoics, wanting to hear some new doctrine, that's what they wanted to do. And there's some strange thing that Paul was preaching. And so they took Paul to the Areopagus at Mars Hill where he preaches, verse 22. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God.'" Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, he is the transcendent one, him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. In other words, God is infinite, unbounded by space, unbounded by time, unlimited, immeasurable, incomprehensible, unsearchable. He doesn't need anything. He he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Even the heavens of heaven cannot contain him, right? Transcendent. Verse 25, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he is the one who gives to all life, breath, and all things. In other words, God is ase. It's the doctrine of his aseity. The uncreated creator of all things is self-existent, self-sufficient, independent above his creation. He is then, of necessity, unchangeable, immutable, eternally perfect in all that he is. It's in this sense that God, do you see, that's, that's why God is immutable. God um, is described by his perfections. They are perfections because they are infinitely perfect, which means that they can't be less than they are. Otherwise, they'd be imperfect. They can't be more than they are. That would mean that they are imperfect. They're perfect. In other words, God doesn't change because He is He's perfect. His perfections, He is immutable. It's in this sense that God is transcendent. It's in this sense that God is set apart ontologically as holy, holy, holy. Both morally set apart from sin, ontological, set apart as being or essence. Now being transcendent. God is also wondrously, gloriously, graciously, mercifully, condescendingly imminent. He is near, verse 26. And he has made. You see he is worthy to receive honor and glory and power because he created all things and by his will they were created, by the, his will they exist and were created. Do you see? He is made imminent. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. He's created man, given him life and breath, fashioned all his days. He executes his will among them, his decrees, by his own goodwill and providence, govern, governs their comings and goings by his own hand, such that nothing happens by chance. There is no such thing as chance. Kingdoms rise and fall. Time passes into history. Men come and go far from being the mere consequence of fate or fortune, far from being merely within the scope of his foreknowledge as though he were merely looking down the corridor of time, God doesn't merely foresee all these things, but God determines all this according to the counsel of his own will. And he does so for a purpose, verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God is imminent, imminent in grace and in mercy. He is near, present, involved. Our God who is transcendent, far above all principality and power, might and dominion, and every name that is named has also manifested himself to us so that we may know him. Awesome. He is imminent. The verb translated, they might grope, in verse 27, pictures us in our Fallen condition is blind, is ignorant. We may grope around, feeling around in the dark. God has revealed himself to us, so near to each one of us that a blind man could find him. Praise God. Verse 28. Because in him we live and move and have our being, near to each one of us. The problem isn't that we... um, The problem is that we aren't merely blind. The problem is that we're actively rebellious. Not merely blind, but blind rebels. Although we live and move and have our being in him, we suppress the truth of that that truth of God in our unrighteousness and are without excuse. Therefore, those made by him, given life from him, placed on this earth to seek him, those who live and move and have their being in him and yet do not seek him, do not find him through Jesus Christ, but rather persist in ignorance of him and in rebellion against him are deserving only of death. The dreadful thought that should fill their mind in their judgment, the dreadful thought that should keep them awake at night is that God is imminent that God will draw near to them. And God draws near to them in judgment and in wrath. He is the terror of hell, so to speak. Verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance, these times of blindness, God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead transcendent in power, imminent in judgment. All praise, honor, and glory, and power be to God. He's graciously imminent salvation. Most wondrously, most astonishingly, most graciously, God has drawn near to us in the person of his only begotten son. How much nearer? <laughs> Emmanuel... God with us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, the incarnation being the most glorious example of his imminence, the most glorious example of his nearness. No one has seen God at any time. He is transcendent. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known, Imminence. And this one suffered and bled and died, gave his life a ransom so that we could live. He draws near to us every week in the preaching of his word. He draws near to us as we study this text in the consideration of Revelation chapter four and the vision of John and the throne room of heaven and the one seated upon the throne. God draws near to us in Revelation. And God drawing near to us What is the reasonable, rational, appropriate, and fitting response of the creature? Worship and praise and adoration. For those who put their faith and trust in him, that is a nearness that will never end. Not only is it a nearness, an eminence, that will never end, it is a nearness, an eminence, that will only increase in time, in eternity. We'll become nearer and nearer, our communion richer and richer, the more that we know him. The more over time, you could say, that he reveals himself to us, the more informed our understanding of who he is becomes, the nearer that we are in communion and fellowship with him, and the more that we worship and praise him in a fitting and reasonable and rational way. Think of this with me from Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Imminence. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. That's awesome. That's imminence. That's the nearness of God, the nearness of our transcendent God. And he is worthy, right? Holy, 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 transcendent. Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things, and by your will, by your divine power, according to your divine purpose, they exist and were created. We were created, brothers and sisters, to worship and praise God in eternity. Do you see? Beautiful to think about and, uh, It'll be our joy in eternity to worship him without sin. <laughs> Look forward to that time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. Where we praise you. Thank you, Lord, for the, the blessing of being able to consider the nature of worship from the example of those around the throne in Revelation 4. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one seated upon the throne, uh, perfect, in all of your ways, transcendent, far above us, altogether not like us, and yet imminent, having drawn near to us in the person and work of your own Son who took on flesh to walk in the mud of our own existence, so to speak, in order to die so that we might be drawn near to you. We thank you, Lord, for this glorious, awesome, truth and praise you, Lord. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power and dominion and might. All praise and worship to you, Lord, and to the Lamb who reigns forever and ever into the ages of ages. And may you be enthroned in praise. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.